Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. It's on page, let's see here, 1062. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1062. And we'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible here. Hebrews 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're really going to focus on verses 12 through 19, the second half of the chapter. But I'll read the whole chapter so you can get the context. Hear then the word of the living God speaking to us today. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ, Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the confidence and the hope in which we boast. Now these next four verses are going to sound familiar because John, we all read it from Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not, wasn't it those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father, we pray, we praise you that you speak to us today. We praise you that this word that we just read is not just a word for the Hebrews in the early church of the first century, but it's written even for Bethany Baptist Church here on August 20th, 2017. We thank you that you're speaking here today, and we pray that you would help us to listen, to hear, to soften our hearts, to believe what you say, and to believe in Christ, and to obey Christ. And we pray that we would watch out for one another, and we pray that you'd help us to encourage one another. All of this can only come about in a way that pleases you, in a supernatural way, only if your Holy Spirit helps us. And so we now ask for his power, 
his strength to do what we cannot do. Namely, hear, see, soften ourselves and believe. So help us, we pray now. Help me as I preach. Help us as we all hear. Humble us before you. And cause us to tremble at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ronnie Kierce, one of our church members, had a funeral here last Saturday. Ronnie's life and death still has me reeling, even up until this week. What he said on his bed at the VA hospital several weeks before he passed away, this is maybe six conversations ago that I had with him, um, what he, what he said to me there reminded me of why we do what we do as Christians and why we do what we do as church members. I asked Ronnie if he was ready to die and face judgment. I asked if he was sure he was going to heaven when he died. Ronnie hesitated with his answer. He looked unsure, a tad uncertain, and actually a bit scared. I asked him why he was unsure, why he hesitated, and he said, Pastor, I have many, many sins in my life. And I could see the fear on his heart. And that reminded me of why we do what we do, why we're, why we're members of the church. John Piper said famously in a sermon that rings in my ear still to this day, who are you going to help die this year? Who are you going to help die this year? In 2017. People are going to die this year. If not this year, next year. Who are you going to help die? The church really is a fellowship to help each other not only live well, but even more importantly, die well. And so we need to think about this reality. Death has a way, doesn't it, of clearing, clarifying what what um, our short lives are really about. You get distracted. You get busy with life. You have a lot of responsibilities, you have the routines, and then you forget about what life is about, and then death gives us the reality check. That's why Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a party, because the living take it to heart. They get a reality check. They wake up, or they have an opportunity. They're more likely to wake up to what life is really about. So look at Hebrews three twelve and 14 again. Look at verse 12, it says, um, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an, un, an evil unbelieving heart that turns away from who turns away from the living God. So there's a possibility that your heart can be unbelieving and turn away from God. Look at verse 14. We have become participants in Christ. If we hold firmly to the end, the reality we have to start if so in other words, it is possible to be a professing Christian. It is possible to be a member of our church or a member of a church, and have an evil, unbelieving heart that will cause you to fall away from God. Where you actually don't endure holding on to the reality of Christ to the end, and you actually are not really a Christian. That's possible. That's probable in every church. That not everyone who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. Members of our church, who we love and who we see every Sunday, can fall away from God and go to the lake of fire. That burns with fire and sulfur forever and ever prepared for Satan and his angels. What this means for us 
at least for me, this is a scary realization. That we are living on the brink of eternity every Sunday. Some of our people might not be in the new earth with us. People that we see here every week might not be with us in heaven. Who we thought were Christian. Who we called brother or sister. The way this author calls these people he's talking to brothers and sisters. Even though some of them might have an evil unbelieving heart. It can happen here. That's a scary realization. And not only is it scary to think that that could happen and will happen likely. But there's a fear of regret that overwhelms me as a pastor. We talked about three weeks ago when I was here. That the pastor is overseeing the church, right? He's overseeing the saints as one who will have to give an account. So I have to give an account for every member of our church. And how I oversee the church. I have to answer to King Jesus for that. So that's scary for me, the, the fear of regret that maybe I was negligent. Did I do enough? Was I faithful as a pastor for the members of our church? But you know, this fear of regret is not mine alone. It ought not to be mine alone because you two are accountable to each other. Are we not as members of the church? What does it mean to be a member of a church? To be a member of a local church is not to be in some club, to be some elite Christian. To be a member of a church is simply to publicly declare that I am responsible for the discipleship of the other members of this church and they are responsible for my discipleship. It's to publicly say I'm with Christ and his people and I will be held accountable to it and I will hold others accountable to it. That's what membership is. And that's basic Christianity. Every Christian is to be a member of a church and therefore every Christian is to be responsible to watch out for one another. And so you too might fear regret. I mean, think about it. We're all going to be dead in a hundred years, right? If Christ doesn't come in a hundred years, we'll all be dead. And some of us won't be there. And we will think on judgment day, I could have done more. I saw him. I saw her sitting there and I didn't say anything. I didn't ask how they're doing. I didn't pray for them. I neglected to pray for them. And our, thankfully, our fear of regret won't go on into eternity. Heaven will be a world of love and joy forever. The new earth will be. But there will be a sense of regret in the beginning when our works are burned up at the judgment seat of Christ, right? And I would spare you and spare us of this regret as much as possible by meditating on this text this morning. So what do we get from this text? What's the main main idea? The main idea here is this. We need to cultivate three habits to care for one another so that sin does not trick any of our church family members to fall away from God. We need to cultivate these three habits in this text to care for each other so that none of us are tricked by sin to the point of falling away from God and finding out we never really were Christian. Here are the three things. Watch, encourage, and remember. Okay, they're right there in the text. Watch is in verse 12. Encourage is in verse 13. And then remember is in verse 15 and following. Okay, so watch, encourage, and remember. Number one, watch your fellow Christians. Watch your fellow Christians. Verse 12, look at verse 12. It says here, listen to the word of God. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So what's the command here? Watch out, right? Not just look at people. It's beware, be aware, be alert for each other. That among our church family, there aren't evil, unbelieving hearts that fall away from the living God. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 
to Timothy, Timothy, as a leader of the church, watch your life and your doctrine. So we should watch ourselves. But this text is not talking about watching ourselves. We should do that. But we need to not only watch ourselves. We also need to watch out for others. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. I was thinking at some of the verses, when the role is called up yonder, we'll be there. Because that's the spirit of this text. That when the role is called up yonder, and we're there on the new earth, and all the names are called out, my church family will be there. Because we're going to obey this text by God's grace. We will be there. It's not just about us individually, us being faithful. It's about us, it's not just about us individually, it's about us corporately. Pastor elders, like I said, are responsible to watch over the church. But here it says, watch out brothers and sisters. So it's not just for pastors, but the exhortation is for who? Brothers and sisters. It's for Christians here. Hebrews 13, it's for pastors. Hebrews 3, it's for every member of the church, every brother and sister. Now, why should we watch out for each other? Why should we look after each other? Why should we pay attention to each other's lives? Is it so we could be nosy? So we could have the latest gossip to share with somebody else some juicy bit of information to feel like we really, this is why we gossip, to feel like we really connect heart to heart with someone? So if I could share some juicy information about somebody and someone else is like, oh man, that's crazy. Then we feel like we're connecting and we need to feel connected to people. So gossip is a cheap way and a sinful, evil way of connecting with people. Is that why we need to watch out for each other? So we could talk behind each other's back and slander each other and backbite? No. Why should we watch out for each other? Look at the verse again. It tells you right there. Watch out, brothers and sisters. Why? So that there won't be what? An evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In other words, we are to watch out for each other to eradicate evil and sin in our hearts unbelief in our hearts that if that unbelief and sin is unchecked and unrepented of thank you john for that prayer that prayer was that prayer of confession was focusing on our sins of repentance even in our repenting we're not repenting the evil and unbelief that can creep in our hearts you let that grow for a week a month a year five years 10 years 20 years and you look back and say how far have i drifted from jesus christ you can fall away from god You can be on fire for God for the first 10 years of your Christian life and fall away from God in the next 30. There's no guarantee. This is a call to being alert. So why do we watch out for each other? Because all of us have sin. All of us have unbelief. And it creeps up on us. And you never get to the point where you don't have to watch out. Understand that all the way till Ronnie on his deathbed. You never get to the point in your life where you don't have to watch out. You always have to watch out for yourself and for others. There are no vacations. I took a two-week vacation, but I still prayed for you because we're still responsible to watch out for each other. There are no vacations from watching out for one another. The idea here is so that there won't be in any of you, the word be there, so that there won't be, could be translated really, that there won't be currently in you an evil, unbelieving heart. So that means that there could be right now in our church, today, an evil, unbelieving heart. And it could be yours. It could be the brother or sister beside you. So what does this mean for us? It means we need to watch out for each other. Now, uh, we'll ask the question, can you lose your salvation? The short answer to that is no. We'll get to the reason why in verse 14. But the short answer to that is no. You cannot lose your salvation. But didn't Jesus watch out for his disciples? Even before they sinned. 
Remember Peter? He said to Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times that you know me. And he warned Peter. It's coming, Peter. Satan's going to sift you. But when you return, strengthen your brothers. That's watching out for each other, warning each other, caring for each other. The opposite of watching out for each other is doing Adam and Eve in the garden. What did, what, what did Eve do? Who was Eve talking to? The serpent, right? There's a serpent. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So here's a serpent saying, did God say you can't eat of any fruit of the tree? Of any of these fruits? Did he want you to starve? Well, no. He said, we just can't eat of this one tree. If we eat of this, we'll die. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman. Well, the woman looked at the fruit. It was good. She was wrestling. It wasn't a quick decision like how we sin sometimes right now. And it's like a whiplash. We don't even realize we sin until a day later when someone points it out to us. But she was wrestling, thinking, debating in her head. What do I do? Do I listen to God? Do I listen to this talking serpent? Will I die? Will I not die? But the food looks so good. The fruit looks so good that she ate it. And then it says in Genesis 3, she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate where was her husband right beside her with her watching out for her guarding her no twiddling his thumbs looking around that's not my business this is between her and god i don't want to be nosy you know is that 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 that's what he was doing and he plunged all of us into this broken evil world that is how you, that's exactly how you do not watch out for one another. Our lives are each other's business. Not to be nosy, not to satisfy curiosity. I tell my kids, we've been practicing this chant recently. Um, kill curiosity or curiosity will kill you. So, so um, I'm not saying you need to be curious about everyone's lives and just nosy. But you do need to watch out for each other's souls. So what does this mean for the world. The world needs to understand this. Christian or non-Christian. This is a point for the whole world. We are made to care for others as humans. We are neighbors. We're to love our neighbors. And we're to love and watch out for each other in our neighborhoods, in our nation, in our world. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you are responsible to watch out for people. That's just true. You're made in God's image. But for the Christian, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for a member of this church? It means that you should pray for each other by name. Right, We have a members list that you guys see and I point to every so often where you have all of the members of our church and we should be praying for each other. Not necessarily every week, but regularly, right? Let's pray for each other. And when you pray for each other, pray thoughtfully for each other that you might watch out for each other. I guarantee if you start praying for people, you'll pay more attention to their lives. It just happens. It's like a magnet. Like you start praying for somebody, you start to care more about what's going on in their lives. You start to be more interested if they'll let you be interested. And then you get to care for them more. Then I would also say, listen to others how uh, listen to how others are doing. Some of us are great talkers and poor listeners. We can dominate a conversation where we have a conversation with someone and we talk ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time. We rarely ask a question about the other person except to set up what we want to say next. Not really to just hear their answer and let them direct the conversation a different way. But let us listen to one another. If we're going to watch out for each other, we actually have to pay attention to each other. And let each other dictate, let another person dictate the conversation. Then I would also say this for the Christian. Trust and welcome the watchfulness of others. Don't be offended when another member is watching out for you. 
Don't be offended by that. Don't be hurt by that. Feel loved. Feel grateful. Welcome it. Invite it. Encourage it to happen more. As a church, this means we take communion seriously. We're going to take communion in a few moments. And when we do, we're going to open up our hymnal. We're going to look at the church covenant. We're going to renew our covenant together here as a church family. We don't do this as mere formality. It is a formality, but it's not a mere formality. We do that to strengthen the fact that we are responsible for each other and that we're in this together. And so let us not come to communion month after month, or if we do it every two weeks. We're doing it two weeks in a row this week, this week and the next Sunday in the Sunday night service, but um, we're doing it twice a month. But um, let's not just take communion regularly while we don't pay attention to each other. That misses the point. Part of communion is paying attention to each other and caring for each other and renewing our watchfulness for each other. If you're not a Christian, you might say, wow, this is exactly why I would never be a Christian. I don't want a bunch of people watching out for me, looking over my shoulder. That feels like, get off me. Give me some privacy. Give me some personal space. Get, you know, Um, that, that could be, I could see that. We Christians can go overboard in that regard. But let me ask you this question if you're not a Christian. Who do you have watching out for your good? Who are your true friends who love you enough to disagree with you and still stay committed to you? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Enemies flatter. Enemies say nice things in front of you and they talk bad behind your back. True friends tell you the truth. They'll disagree with you up front because they care about you. If you're not a Christian, I would invite you to have friends who are committed to you even when they're against you because they're for you. If that makes sense. They're against you in the small because they're for you in the big picture, right? And let's watch out for every member, not just for the members we like, okay? We all have members here. Now, in every church, you're going to have some members you're closer to and other members you're not as close to. And that's going to be from different seasons of your life. That's okay. That's normal. But that doesn't mean you only watch out for those you're close to in that season. You watch out for every member, those who are different than you, different social grouping than you different ethnicity than you, different age group than you, different gender than you, different stage of life. And this includes watching over our shut-ins, the members who can't be here on a Sunday for physical reasons. Watching out for the children of our members as well. Now, if you let this unbelieving heart settle, it will cause you to fall away from who? According to the text, the living God, right? So, if... If we're not going to fall away, what else can we do besides watching out for each other? Look at verse 13. This is point two. So watch was number one. What's point two? Encourage. Encourage Encourage your fellow Christians. The command here is in verse 13. Look at it. Um, But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So there's a command. Encourage them. Encourage means what it says. You put courage into somebody. You give them strength. You give them courage. They have, they're discouraged. They lack courage. They lack strength. They lack comfort. And you come alongside them and you instill courage in them. You instill strength in them. You instill hope in them and comfort in them and love in them and joy in them. That's what it means to encourage, to give courage, to put courage in somebody. So if you're going to encourage fellow Christians, guess what? Tell them what they already know. But they know that already. Tell them again. 
They need to hear it in your words, in your voice. At that point, in that moment in history, tell them again. Comfort the afflicted and hurting. Help the weak. Encourage the discouraged and faint-hearted. Gordon Chang, who wrote a book called Encouragement, very good book, it says this. He defines encouragement this way. Christian encouragement is speaking the truth in love with the aim of building Christians up in Christ's likeness as we wait for the day of judgment. So speaking the truth in love with the aim of building them up in Christ's likeness as we wait for the day of judgment. I'm going to modify that in a second, but before I do, how can we speak the truth in love to each other? You could tell them that Jesus is Lord so they don't have to be in control. You could tell them that Jesus is our treasure so they don't have to look elsewhere. You could tell them that Jesus is Lord so they don't have to fear other people. You could tell them that Jesus is Savior so they don't have to prove themselves to other people. We call it the four G's, right? Jesus or Lord, Savior, and Treasure. You could tell them about evidences of God's grace in their lives. You know that most members of our church have God actively working in their lives? Good grace. And you know that most of our members are unaware of the grace in their lives? You know that we could see sin in each other's lives better than people can see it themselves, right? You know that's also true of grace? We could see grace in each other's lives better than other people can see it. So one way you could encourage each other is when you see God's Holy Spirit working in them. Just take the fruit of the Spirit, for example. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just take that list and look at another member of our church. And do you see any of that in their lives? Like right now, today? If you do, tell them. That's the fruit of who? The Spirit. That's not their work by themselves. That's God actively working in their lives. So tell them afresh. I see God's Spirit Working in you. Praise the Lord. You know what that instills in people? Courage. That encourages them. Give them a Bible verse that you've been encouraged by lately. Let them know that you love them, that you pray for them, and you'll pray with them. But at the core of encouragement, there's this word in um, Greek that basically could be translated encourager, intercessor, or helper, advocate, um, it's in John 14, 15, and 16. It's also in 1 John 2. And it talks about Jesus. Jesus is about to leave his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16. It's the last night, last night before he's about to be crucified and then rise from the dead and leave. And he says to them, I am leaving you, but another comforter, another encourager will come to you. And he will tell you about me because he'll take what is mine and, and give it to you. He'll glorify me. You know who he, who he was talking about? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the encourager, and the Holy Spirit is also the encourager. And this is what D.A. Carson says about this. The Holy Spirit helps believers in their witness and strengthens and comforts them by his presence. He also, as the prosecuting attorney, attorney, exposes the sin of the world. But he encourages believers by their witness, strengthens and comforts them by his presence. He further explains, here's what the Holy Spirit does. He explains the significance of Jesus' person and ministry functioning as the agent of revelation in this way the holy spirit shows himself actively engaged so how does the holy spirit encourage ultimately by showing people who jesus by showing them who jesus is and why jesus is relevant in your life today not just in history but in in your life today both history and today so jesus was the encourager he sends the holy spirit to be the encourager who encourages you by pointing you to who to jesus and that's what the author of hebrews does 
In Hebrews 2.1, he says, consider Jesus. In Hebrews 3.1, he says, um, or Hebrews 2.1, pay close attention to Jesus. In Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. In Hebrews 12.2, fix your eyes on Jesus as you run the race of faith. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's always pointing you to Jesus because that is the core of our encouragement. Jesus is the encourager and he is the encouragement. So pointing people to Christ and connecting everyone's lives to Christ right now is the best way and actually, ultimately, the only way you can truly, deeply encourage one another. So I would say Christian encouragement is not just speaking the truth in love. I would say Christian encouragement is speaking Jesus, who is the truth, speaking Jesus in love in order to help your hearer trust Jesus as we wait for the day of judgment. Now, why? Why should we encourage each other? Why should we instill this courage? Look at verse 12, 13 again. The reason is given right there in verse 13. Why should we encourage each other daily? So that what? So that none of you is what? Hardened by what? Sin's deception. Okay, so you have a few levels here. You have sin. But why do you sin? Or, well, sin is maybe the starting point, but sin lies to you, right? And so sin deceives you. When you, when sin is giving you a lie and you believe it, you, you end up sinning, right? That's what temptation does. Gives you a lie. You believe the lie. You end up sinning. So sin has deception. And if you believe that lie, the Bible here calls it unbelief. Unbelief in the truth and belief in the, the lie, right? Unbelief in the truth, belief in the lie. So, Deception leads to unbelief. Unbelief leads to what? Look at verse. Let me see here. Oh, verse 13 still. Hardness. If you if you believe the lie, it leads to unbelief. Unbelief leads to what? Hardness of heart. And hardness of heart leads to what? Falling away from the living God. You see how that works? So sin gives you a lie. You believe the lie, you don't believe the truth. Unbelief is is the cause of the sin and, and the result of the temptation. Unbelief, well, leads to, I, we could throw another word in there, disobedience. The word disobedience is in this text. Unbelief leads to disobedience. You disobey enough, guess what happens? Your heart gets hard. You let your heart get hard long enough, and then you end up falling away from the living God. Now, what is a hardened heart then? So why do we need to encourage each other? Because sin tricks us, and we could have hard hearts. What is a hardened heart? A hardened heart is a mind and heart and attitude of a professing Christian who is unable and unwilling to receive the word of God specifically applied to them, calling them to fresh repentance and faith. Every time you hear God's word, you know what God's telling you to do? Enjoy me is what God's saying. Trust me. Honor me. Commune with me. God is telling you every time you hear his word to believe in him. And repent from sin. That's what he's telling you to do. Believe in him and repent from sin. And every time you every time you hear that and it kind of ro- rolls off your heart because your heart's too hard, your heart gets what? Harder, right? And so listening to sermons every Sunday is a dangerous thing. It's a risky thing to grow in, in Bible knowledge. Why? You're more accountable. And the more you grow in knowledge without application, without obedience, without belief... Without softening your heart, the more you grow in hardness. So you can be a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years, and be far harder in your heart.
than you were when you began. If you keep hearing God's word. So we must encourage each other every day. So we're not hardened by sin's deception. Now, what does it mean to be deceived? What's another word for deceived? Anyone else have another word? A less complicated word. Tricked, right? So a magic trick or being tricked. When you talk about sin tricking you or deceiving you, you're only tricked if you actually... So to be tricked is to not be aware that you're being tricked, right? If you are aware, you're not being deceived, right? If you're aware, you're not being tricked. So if you do magic, our kids, we went to Knott's Berry Farm and they have magic tricks. You know, there's a magic show and they do magic tricks at the magic show. So, so they're, they're, they're showing you all these tricks. Now, as from the audience, you don't know how they're doing the, the tricks that they're doing. When you don't know, you're being deceived. Your eyes are deceiving you, right? That's why we call it a trick. Well, guess what? Sin tricks you. So that means look around, look around at other members in our church. Everyone here is being tricked by sins somewhere. And they don't know it. They can't know it. That's what it means to be tricked. So you have to be like I could be with my kids with magic shows. Spoil the tricks, right? You tell them what, what's up. Tell them what's going on so that, so that they're not tricked anymore. We have members. We are all being tricked by sin whenever we're sinning. And we need others to encourage us to give us eyes to see. Or another analogy would be it's like a blind spot. Now... Um, I failed my driver's test to give in to the Asian uh, stereotype of Asians being bad drivers. I failed my first driver's test because I didn't look behind me. When I was, you know, you go up to the curb, you go like this to the side, parallel parking, and then you back up straight. I looked in the rearview mirror, did not check my blind spot because I didn't look back. And you're supposed to back up for, and then I bumped, didn't knock over, but still, still equally bad, automatic fail. I bumped a trash can. And so that was an automatic fail because I had a blind spot. I didn't look back. And you're saying, well, if you would look back, you wouldn't have any blind spots. True, but don't think of it as a driving. Think of yourself as a as an airplane pilot of a fighter jet. What do they have sitting beside behind them? A co-pilot or a wingman, right? And what are where are they facing? They're facing backwards. Why? To see what you can't see. You have blind spots. And so you need a wingman. You need a co-pilot. That's what the church is. That's what church members are. You can't just turn around and look at a blind spot like it's a driving blind spot. It's more like a fighter jet blind spot. And you need other church members to see what you cannot see on your own. It is impossible for you to see it. Self-examination has a limit. You need to examine your hearts, but it has limits. You need others in your life. So, how, And how frequently should we do this? Look at the verse. Verse 13. How often should we encourage each other? Daily. Daily? And if you didn't get that, while it is still called today. So if you say, I will encourage them tomorrow or next Sunday, you're not obeying the actual words of the text. When are you supposed to encourage them? Today. Today. Daily. Why? Why do you need to encourage them and speak the truth today? Because what are they hearing every day? Lies. Lies, 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 lies. They hear lies on TV. They hear lies online. They hear lies from the world. They hear lies from demonic whispers in their ears. And they hear lies from themselves. We lie to ourselves. Don't, don't you do that? You wake up in the morning and you start thinking thoughts and they start bouncing around in your head. And you have some evil thoughts, don't you? You have some lies that are bouncing around in your head. You let those thoughts bounce around and go unchecked with no one speaking the truth in you, into you. 
and you end up believing lies. And lies come at every one of our members every day. So we must encourage each other every day. Now, our word, God's word, is way more powerful than the lies of the world. And yet we still need to encourage each other every day. So we need each other is the point. We need to share our lives with each other. We need to open up our lives to each other. What does this mean for the Christian? Let's apply this to the Christian. Not only should you point out God's activity in each other's lives. Not only should you point people to Jesus, but you should be physically present. Be physically present to encourage people. Call them, email them, text them. That's all great. Good. Do that. But also be physically present. Do you know that when you come to a church gathering and you just sit here and then you greet people or you let people greet you and then you hang out for a little bit and then you leave at the the end of service? Do you know that you encourage people without knowing it? Presence is like 51% of the encouragement. Just showing up here encourages people. Say, I didn't even realize I was encouraging people. You were, you are. So being physically present in a church family, in a church gathering is encouraging. In In a similar way or in a in a corollary way that being absent sometimes discourages people, right? If, 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 if you have an important event and people are absent, that could discourage you, which is why I'm so grateful a lot of our members do this. Most by email, but some do it personally. They're like, hey, I'm going to be out of town for this week. I'm on, I was on vacation for two weeks. But when the church family knows that you're not going to be there, that's encouraging that they still care about you when they're not there. You can find a way to encourage even when you're not present. But let's encourage each other with physical presence and let's encourage each other every day. Let me, let me answer some, because this is the main application or exhortation of the text. Let me, let me wrestle with you on some objections to why we don't encourage people. I'm going to give you a bunch of objections and answers to them. Here's one reason why I don't encourage people because that person already knows it. Ever, ever think that in your thought, in your mind? Well, he already knows it. So what good is it for me to say it? My question back to you is, does he really know it? Well, he won't listen anyway. Are you saying God's word will never work? Ever? Only God can change him. True, but doesn't God use people? I don't know how to say it. Will God's Holy Spirit abandon you in that moment? Well, I'm guilty of sin myself, and I'd be a hypocrite if I say it to them because I'm guilty of sin too. Aren't you a forgiven and repentant sinner? Doesn't God invite you to repent afresh and then go minister that same repentant grace to another person? Well, I don't know the person that well. Other church members know him better than me. It's not my place to say, I don't know them that well. Well, did God make a mistake in allowing you to be a member of the church with him? Did God make a mistake by allowing you to be the person who's aware of their sin and the danger that they're in? Well, other people know the person better. True. Is God only giving them the responsibility? Well, I pray for the person, and that's more powerful than encouraging him directly. True. But does God let us choose which commands to obey and which commands to disobey? Does he say pray and that's it? No. Well, I don't have time. My life is busy. God has me doing other things. That might be true at times. But my question back is, what is God leading you to do right now that is more important than being used by him to keep another eternal soul from falling away? What's more important? Well, it's not my place to, to say. Isn't God addressing us in this text? Aren't you brother or sister? Aren't you part of God's family? That's who he's talking to, the family of God. It's not my responsibility, PJ. 
Did God exclude you from the group of brothers and sisters? I'll do it tomorrow or another day. The timing isn't right. Did God stutter when he said daily while it is still called? What's the next word? Today? We don't have good reasons for not encouraging people. We have no good reason to be negligent of encouraging each other. The real reason we don't do it is we don't feel the real and present danger our family members are in. We just don't feel it. Even, not only should we encourage others, we should welcome other people encouraging us. Welcome and invite truth-telling from others. You know, you know what? here's a key to be more welcoming when other people correct you. Do you want to be better at receiving correction from others? You should say yes. Okay, just say yes, at least pretend right now, just so I know that, you know. Yes, you should want to be better at other people correcting you and encouraging you. Here's how you do it. You have two options. You could either be the type of church member who has self-trust and church doubt, or you could be the type of church member who has self-doubt and church trust. You either have self-trust and church doubt. You trust yourself that you see everything in your life and you have no blind spots and the church doesn't know you. They don't know the real you. So they can't be right in their criticism of you. That's self-trust and church doubt. That's not this text. If you want to be, if you want the heart of this text, then you need to embrace self-doubt and church trust. Trust the love of other members. Trust the love of God through your church family correcting you. Trust them. As a church family, we need to open up our lives to one another. Let us be a community that excels in encouraging each other and pointing each other to Christ as a church family. Come share and pray with us on Sunday night, maybe. I want to, on behalf of the whole church, thank you, those of you who come regularly on Sunday night. I want to thank you for coming to encourage each other and to pray for each other and to pray for the whole church. We don't know what our reward is until we get to heaven, what difference it makes in the church. But I want to thank you for that. And if you don't come on Sunday night, if you're only asking what's in it for you, then you're missing the point of Sunday night. Church gatherings are filled with opportunities to watch and encourage others. We pass a mic around. We share blessings. We share prayer requests. And you know what you get if you're a church member who has the heart of this passage? You get a front row seat to other people's hearts so that you can find out how to watch out for them and encourage them better. It's not just about you. What's in it for me? Listen to what other people are saying. So you have an opportunity now to, to bless them and serve them. All right, let's go to this last point. And um, it's a lot, a lot of verses, but not as long in terms of the preaching here. But verses 14 and 19. The, so the first one was watch out for each other. The second one was what? Encourage each other. And thirdly, remember. What do I want you to remember? Remember and feel. Remember and feel the danger your fellow Christians are in. Remember and feel the danger your fellow Christians are in. As a parent, I um, I have fears that I didn't have when I was a single man. So I was hiking one time with my friend. This was when my oldest son was just born. He's well, maybe six months old. I was hiking with one of my good friends from church. And um, we were there was a waterfall and there's this place where you're not supposed to do rock climbing, but we did it. And then there's a little, a little maybe three or four foot thing you need to jump to get to the other side. It's probably a 50 foot drop. And, um, but it's an easy jump, like three feet. Okay. Three feet or even two feet. It was, it was really doable. Um, 
And as a single man, I've been like, like, he was single at the time, and he just jumped over. He's like, come on. And I'm like, I thought about jumping and falling, landing on my back, breaking my back, becoming quadriplegic, and then having to raise my son as a quadriplegic because I tried a stupid jump, two-foot jump, where we're not even supposed to be hiking. And I thought to myself, this is so crazy. If this was like a year ago, I would have totally jumped without any thought. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking about parenting and my future and my kid's future. And I have all kinds of fears now. In other words, it's not like the danger wasn't there before. It's that having a child helped me realize the danger that always was present. I have another story that I've told you before, but I think it illustrates the point well of not being aware of danger as a kid. You know, um, I I tell a story, and please don't blame my parents for this. This is my fault. Um, But I got into an ice cream truck. You know, the ice cream truck, he befriended us, and eventually um, he, he would give us rides home from the bus stop. I was a fourth grader, and my brother was a second grader. And we would we would have to duck in the ice cream truck so that people wouldn't see and he wouldn't get in trouble. Well, I didn't realize at the time what that meant. And he would take us home, and nothing happened ever, thank God. But you guys are all like, what was – you know, the, the danger that I was in, I mean, as a parent, I would freak out if my kids did that, right? Of course we would. I mean, you guys are freaking out right now, but I'm here. I'm okay. Um but that's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? How immature of me not to feel or sense the danger as a fourth grader and put my second grade brother in the same danger. And yet, I mean, so I didn't feel the danger. And in the same ridiculous way, you don't feel the danger of your fellow church members. You don't feel it. That's why, that, that, that's our, that's why we fail to encourage because we don't remember and feel the danger our church family is actually in. We are not talking about just being abducted for 10 or 50 years of your life, which is a crazy thing. We're talking about hell for all eternity. And every member here is in danger of being deceived by sin's deception. And we need to remember and feel the danger that we are in. That's what, that's what the author is getting at here. Look at verse 14. For we have become participants in Christ... If we hold firmly till the end, the reality we had at the start. So how do you know you're a true Christian who participated in Christ, who shares in Christ? If you hold firmly till the what? End. If you don't hold firmly to the end, if you don't trust Christ all the way to the end, if you give up or give you know, get hardened by sin's deception, fall away, you never really were a Christian. It's not that you lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can think you're saved when you're really not. And those who make it trust in Christ to the end, are the ones who have proved that they always were participants or sharers in Christ. That's the principle. God is speaking. And so what does he say here in verse 14, uh, 15? As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it those who came out of Egypt under Moses? with whom God was angry for 40 years? And wasn't it those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness and whom he did he swear he would not, they would not enter his rest? If not, those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So he's telling us to remember a story of the Israelites who fell away and God was saying, hear my voice. What is the story here? This story is about 1400 BC, 1400, 1440s BC, during the Exodus. Moses led the Israelites out of where? They were enslaved in what nation? 
Egypt, the greatest, most powerful country at the time. They were slaves in Egypt and Moses led them out of Egypt. God busted them out of Egypt, a, a slave people defeating the most, the most powerful world power nation at the time and getting free from them. How do they do it? Ten plagues. I don't remember all ten plagues, but there were boils on people. Water was turned to blood. They saw frogs all over the place, gnats or flies. There were locusts letting up all the livestock or I mean all the crops. There were livestock that died. There was darkness for a period of time, just darkness where it was, there's pitch black for days where you could start to feel the darkness in your soul, it says. And then the last one was God killed all the firstborn from Egypt, including Pharaoh's son. Well, finally, after all, and he, he didn't kill any of the Israelites firstborn because they put blood on the door of the Passover lamb. They saw all of that. They got out of Egypt. Then when they were trapped at the edge of the sea, God opened the Red Sea to let them walk across on dry land while he was blocking the Egyptians. Then he lets the Egyptians through. They go into the water. They Then the Israelites have crossed the water. They look back. Moses lifts his hands. The water closes on them and kills the Egyptian army. And they saw all of that with their own eyes. Then... They're traveling to Mount Sinai to get the law covenant and on the way they get hungry. So you know what God does? He provides bread for over a million people. Miraculously, they wake up and there's bread on the floor for them to eat. So they collect bread and they see that every day. Then they get to the mount, mountain and God puts his presence there. The whole thing gets caught, caught on fire. There's smoke going up. You could smell the smoke. You can see the fire. You can see the lightning. You can hear the thunder. You can feel the earthquake. And they're saying, we don't want to talk to God, Moses. You go talk to God. So Moses goes up. He gets 10 commandments and gets a bunch of instructions. He comes back down and they say, we will obey everything God said. And one of the things that Moses said there was, God is testing you. Do not make gods of gold. And they said, we'll obey everything God says. So Moses goes up for another 40 days and 40 nights. And what do they do in those 40 days and 40 nights? They make a God of gold. What happened to Moses? We don't know. So, so then God wants to wipe them out. He only kills some of them. He opens up the ground and they, and God, the ground swallows them. They see that. Then they travel to the promised land. And here's the story in Numbers 12, Numbers 12, 13, or Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13, they get to the promised land. They're on the edge. And God says, send 12 spies. So they send 12 spies into the land. Okay, so there's 12 spies in the land. Get a report and then come back because God is going to give us this land. Okay, so they go. They see the land. They see the people. They're pretty big. They come back. Well, what happened? Well, the, the two spies said, man, it's a great land. It's, it's, it's flowing with milk and honey. Let's go and take it because God's about to give it to us. And then the 10 spies say, oh yeah, it is a great land, but let's not go there, man. These things, these guys are huge. They're strong. They're powerful. We look like grasshoppers in front of them. They're going to kill us. Let's, let's not get out. We're going to die if we go in. And the congregation, the assembly, all of the Israelites believe the 10 spies and they start complaining and crying all night. They're crying, fearing for their kids' lives. They're crying all night. They rebel and they say, they start getting mad at Moses. They want to kill Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, let's go in. They say, let's get back. Let's go back to Egypt. And so God comes down and wants to wipe out the Israelites again. Then he says, you will, none of the people 20 years and older will enter the land. You're all going to die. I swear to it. You will not set foot in this land. You will not enter my rest. You rebel against me. You see all that I showed you. 
All that I showed you. You've seen all, you've seen me take on the most powerful army in the world. And you're scared of some tribes in Canaan? Because of that, I swear to you in my anger. It says in Psalms, the one we read together from Psalm 95, it says God was disgusted with them. God was disgusted. He was angry. It wasn't petty anger. It was deep-seated righteous anger. The way you'd be angry at a child molester or something, you know. Just righteous, boiling anger. God was angry with his people. And he said, I swear to you, you will not enter this rest. And so, that was 1400 BC. 400 years later, Psalm 95 is written. Probably by David, if it is by David. 400 years later. And God's, David says to Israel, today do not harden your hearts because there's a final rest. Don't harden your hearts like they did. And so Hebrews is saying, even you Christians today, the final rest is in here. It's not just the promised land. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Today, listen to his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Remember that people who say they're the people of God are not necessarily the people of God. Just because you were busted out of Egypt doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you sing songs or preach sermons doesn't mean you're saved. Listen to his voice. Soften your heart. Remember that people who say they're part of the covenant community are not necessarily part of the covenant community. And that could be you. That could be the person beside you. So feel the danger of deception that we are all in. That's why we're members of a church. That's why we are church family. That's why we're responsible for for each other's discipleship. So, in closing, every member of our church will die real soon. The Bible says life is a vapor and our opportunity to get each other to the final rest is slipping away each week as we get closer to death. Let me say what this means for Christians and I'll say what it means for non-Christians. For Christians, this is what it means. We need to watch over each other We need to encourage each other and we need to remember the danger we're all in. If we fail to watch, encourage, and remember, then Satan will choke out the faith of some of our members who profess faith in Christ out of pain or pleasure. Some of our brothers and sisters will go to hell and be revealed to not be true brothers and sisters. And you will grieve and regret the fact that we neglected to care for them, that you neglected to care for them. But if we watch... If you watch, if you encourage, and if you remember, then Satan will be frustrated and defeated as we gospelize each other. Brothers and sisters who are currently unsaved in our church, who are members of our church who are currently unsaved and unaware that they're not saved, might even get saved without even knowing they got saved. You might, I might say, I got saved in 1989. Well, you actually got saved in 2002 and you didn't know it, but people kept gospelizing you. So people who aren't saved might actually get saved because they, even though they didn't know it. And lastly, we'll celebrate the ways God used us to help those who shared life with us here on earth. If you're not a Christian, this rest is for you as well. God is speaking to you as well. God is telling you, if you're not a Christian, that you're a sinner, like all of us. God is holy, and we're going to be judged by him. But here's the good news. Jesus was judged for us. Jesus was denied entrance into the rest for three hours on the cross. He was not allowed to enter the rest. He got the wrath of God. The judgment of God poured out on him on the cross for your sins. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. 
you too can enter the rest. If you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, call on the Lord to save you, even today, God will forgive you, he'll save you, he'll give you his Holy Spirit to empower you to follow Jesus, and he'll give you a church family to walk with you, to watch out for you, to encourage you, and to remember the danger that you and all of us are in. We are here working together, using our strengths, our gifts, our graces to help each other make it to the end. I didn't tell you what I told Ronnie. So Ronnie was there on his deathbed, but it was actually a few weeks out still. But when I asked him and he looked scared, I was remembering this is why we're Christians. Because of issues like this, we want to die well. So he was unsure. Am I, am I Christian? Am I going to go to heaven? And I said to Ronnie, he said, I have so many sins, pastor. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. And then I said, that's true. But do you remember Jesus? He's like, yeah. What do you remember about Jesus? He died. Why did he die? For our sins. For our sins? For your sins? All those sins you just mentioned? Yeah. Is he still dead? No, he rose from the dead. So he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And why, why did he do that? To save us. So, so even though we're sinners, you're right, Ronnie. I'm not debating any of your sins. We all have sins. We all deserve to go to hell. And Ronnie, you can see Ronnie's eyes start to light up. Jesus has saved me. Jesus does care for me. Jesus did die for me. Jesus does save. And then the next time I visited Ronnie, and the next time I visited him, he said, the second, I think two visits later, he said, Pastor, I've never forgot what you said, and I'm ready to die. I trust in Jesus. He died for me. He rose for me. Amen. An encouraged soul who didn't have courage. And guess what? The best of us will lack courage on our deathbeds. Amen. And we will need each other. We will need the gospel. We will need Christ spoken to us in love. We will need it not just on our deathbed. We need it right now, here, this Sunday. So I want to close by thanking you. I want to thank our church. I want to thank you, Bethany Baptist Church, for watching out for me and encouraging me towards Jesus Christ these past two years and ten months. I trust Jesus today in large measure because of you. And we need to keep doing that for each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't have to walk this Christian life alone. Thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and that we can watch out for one another and care for each other and warn each other and encourage each other and feel the danger we're in for each other because of your son Jesus.